Section 1 of A History of Our Own Times from the Accession of Queen Victoria to the General Election of 1880, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. A History of Our Own Times from the Accession of Queen Victoria to the General Election of 1880, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. Chapter 18. Chartism and Young Ireland, Part 1. The year 1848 was an era in the modern history of Europe. It was the year of unfulfilled revolutions. The fall of the dynasty of Louis-Philippe may be said to have set the revolutionary tide flowing. The event in France had long been anticipated by keen-eyed observers, there are many predictions delivered and recorded before the revolution was yet near which show that it ought not to have taken the world by surprise. The reign of the bourgeois king was unsuited in its good and in its bad qualities alike to the genius and the temper of the French people. The people of France have defects enough which friends and enemies are ready to point out to them, but it can hardly be denied that they like at least the appearance of a certain splendor and magnanimity in their systems of government. This is indeed one of their weaknesses. It lays them open to the allurements of any brilliant adventurer, like the first Napoleon or the third, who can promise them national greatness and glory at the expense perhaps of domestic liberty. But it makes them peculiarly intolerant of anything mean and sordid in a system or a ruler. There are peoples, no doubt, who could be persuaded and wisely persuaded to put up with a good deal of the ignoble and the shabby in their foreign policy for the sake of domestic comfort and tranquillity. But the French people are always impatient of anything like meanness in their rulers, and the government of Louis Philippe was especially mean. Its foreign policy was treacherous. Its diplomatists were commissioned to act as tricksters. The word of a French minister at a foreign court began to be regarded as on a level of credibility with a dicer's oath. The home policy of the king was narrow-minded and repressive enough, but a man who played upon the national weakness more wisely might have persuaded his people to be content with defects at home for the sake of prestige abroad. From the hour when it became apparent in France that the nation was not respected abroad, the fall of the dynasty was only a matter of time and change. The terrible story of the de Pralon family helped to bring about the catastrophe. The alternate weakness and obstinacy of the government forced it on, and the king's own lack of decision made it impossible that when the trial had come it could end in any way but one. Louis-Philippe, fled to England, and his flight was the signal for long pent-up fires to break out all over Europe. Revolution soon was aflame over nearly all the courts and capitals of the continent. Revolution is like an epidemic. It finds out the weak places in systems. The two European countries which, being tried by it, stood at best were England and Belgium. In the latter country, the king made frank appeal to his people, and told them if they wished to be rid of him he was quite willing to go. 
Language of this kind is new in the mouths of sovereigns, and the Belgians are a people well able to appreciate it. They declared for their king, and the shock of the revolution passed harmlessly away. In England and Ireland the effect of the events in France was instantly made manifest. The Chartist agitation at once came to a head. Some of the Chartist leaders called out for the dismissal of the ministry, the dissolution of the Parliament, the Charter and no surrender. A national convention of Chartists began its sittings in London to arrange for a monster demonstration on April 10th. Some of the speakers openly declared that the people were now quite ready to fight for their charter. Others, more cautious, advised that no step should be taken against the law until at least it was quite certain that the people were stronger than the upholders of the existing laws. Nearly all the leading chartists spoke of the revolution in France as an example offered in good time to the English people, and it is somewhat curious to observe how it was assumed in the most evident good faith that what we may call the wage-receiving portion of the population of these islands constitutes exclusively the English people. What the educated, the wealthy, the owners of land, the proprietors of factories, the ministers of the different denominations, the authors of books, the painters of pictures, the bench, the bar, the army, the navy, the medical profession, what all these or any of them might think with regard to any proposed constitutional changes was accounted a matter in no wise affecting the resolve of the English people. The moderate men among the Chartists themselves were soon unable to secure a hearing, and the word of order went round among the body that the English people must have the Charter or a Republic. What had been done in France, enthusiasts fancied, might well be done in England. It was determined to present a monster petition to the House of Commons, demanding the Charter, and in fact offering a last chance to Parliament to yield quietly to the demand. The petition was to be presented by a deputation who were to be conducted by a vast procession up to the doors of the House. The procession was to be formed on Kennington Common, the space then unenclosed which is now Kennington Park on the south side of London. There the Chartists were to be addressed by their still-trusted leader Fergus O'Connor, and they were to march in military order to present their petition. The object, undoubtedly, was to make such a parade of physical force as should overawe the legislature and the government and demonstrate the impossibility of refusing a demand backed by such a reserve of power. The idea was taken from O'Connell's policy in the monster meetings, but there were more of the Chartists who hoped for something more than a mere demonstration of physical force, and who would have been heartily glad if some untimely or unreasonable interference on the part of the authorities had led to a collision. A strong faith still survived at that time in what was grandiosely called the might of earnest numbers. Ardent young Chartists, who belonged to the time of life when anything seems possible to the brave and faithful, and when facts and examples count for nothing unless they favor one's own views, fully believed that it needed but the firing of the first shot, the sparkle of the first sword drawn, to give success to the arms, though but the bare arms of the people, and to inaugurate the reign of liberty. Therefore, however differently and harmlessly events may have turned out, we may be certain 
that there went to the rendezvous at Kennington Common on that April 10th many hundreds of ignorant and excitable young men who desired nothing so much as a collision with the police and the military and the reign of liberty to follow. The proposed procession was declared illegal, and all peaceful and loyal subjects were warned not to take any part in it. But this was exactly what the more ardent among the Chartists expected and desired to see. They were rejoiced that the government had proclaimed the procession unlawful. Was not that the proper occasion for resolute patriots to show that they represented a cause above despotic law? Was not that the very opportunity offered to them to prove that the people were more mighty than their rulers, and that the rulers must obey or abdicate? Was not the whole sequence of proceedings thus far exactly after the pattern of the French Revolution? The people resolve that they will have a certain demonstration in a certain way. The oligarchical government declare that they shall not do so. The people persevere, and, of course, the next thing must be that the government falls exactly as in Paris. When poor Dick Swiveller in Dickens's story is recovering from his fever, he looks forth of his miserable bed and makes up his mind that he is under the influence of some such magic spell as he has become familiar with in the Arabian Nights. His poverty-stricken little nurse claps her thin hands with joy to see him alive, and Dick makes up his mind that the clapping of the hands is the sign understood of all who read Eastern romance, and that next must appear at the princess's summons the row of slaves with jars of jewels on their heads. Poor Dick, reasoning from his experiences in the Arabian Nights, was not one whit more astray than enthusiastic Chartists reasoning for the sequence of English politics from the evidence of what had happened in France. The slaves with the jars of jewels on their heads were just as likely to follow the clap of the poor girl's hands as the events that had followed a popular demonstration in Paris to follow a popular demonstration in London. To begin with, the Chartists did not represent any such power in London as the liberal deputies of the French Chamber did in Paris. In the next place, London does not govern England, and in our time at least never did. In the third place, the English government knew perfectly well that they were strong in the general support of the nation and were not likely to yield for a single moment to the hesitation which sealed the fate of the French monarchy. The Chartists fell to disputing among themselves very much as O'Connell's repealers had done. Some were for disobeying the rules of the authorities and having the procession, provoking rather than avoiding a collision. At a meeting of the Chartist Convention held the night before the demonstration, the Eve of Liberty, as some of the orators eloquently termed it, a considerable number were for going armed to Kennington Common. Fergus O'Connor had, however, sense enough still left to throw the weight of his influence against such an insane proceeding, and to insist that the demonstration must show itself to be, as it was from the first proclaimed to be, a strictly pacific proceeding. This was the parting of the ways in the Chartist, as it had been in the repeal agitation. The more ardent spirits at once withdrew from the organization. Those who might even at the very last have done mischief if they had remained part of the movement withdrew from it, 
and Chartism was left to be represented by an open-air meeting and a petition to Parliament, like all the other demonstrations that the metropolis had seen to pass, hardly heeded across the field of politics. But the public at large was not aware that the fangs of Chartism had been drawn before it was let loose to play on Kennington Common that memorable 10th of April. London awoke in great alarm that day. The Chartists, in their most sanguine moments, never ascribed themselves half the strength that honest alarmists of the bourgeois class were ready that morning to ascribe to them. The wildest rumors were spread abroad in many parts of the metropolis. Long before the Chartists had got together on Kennington Common at all, various remote quarters of London were filled with horrifying reports of encounters between the insurgents and the police or the military, in which the Chartists invariably had the better, and as a result of which they were marching in full force to the particular district where the momentary panic prevailed. London is worse off than most cities in such a time of alarm. It is too large for true accounts of things rapidly to diffuse themselves. In April 1848, the street telegraph was not in use for carrying news through cities, and the rapidly succeeding editions of the cheap papers were as yet unknown. In various quarters of London, therefore, the citizen was left, through the greater part of the day, in all the agonies of doubt and uncertainty. There was no lack, however, of public precautions against an outbreak of armed chartism. The Duke of Wellington took charge of all the arrangements for guarding the public buildings and defending the metropolis generally. He acted with extreme caution and told several influential persons that the troops were in readiness everywhere, but that they would not be seen unless an occasion actually rose for calling on their services. The coolness and presence of mind of the stern old soldier are well illustrated in the fact that to several persons of influence and authority who came to him with suggestions for the defense of this place or that, his almost invariable answer was done already or done two hours ago or something of the kind. A vast number of Londoners enrolled themselves as special constables for the maintenance of law and order. Nearly 200,000 persons, it is said, were sworn in for this purpose, and it will always be told as an odd incident of that famous scare that the Prince Louis Napoleon, then living in London, was one of those who volunteered to bear arms in the preservation of order. Not a long time was to pass before the most lawless outrage on the order and life of a peaceful city was to be perpetrated by the special command of the man who was so ready to lend the saving aid of his constable's staff to protect English society against some poor hundreds or thousands of English working men. The crisis, however, luckily proved not to stand in need of such saviors of society. The Chartist demonstration was a wretched failure. The separation of the Chartists who wanted force from those who wanted orderly proceedings reduced the project to nothing. The meeting on Kennington Common, so far from being a gathering of half a million of men, was not a larger concourse than a temperance demonstration had often drawn together on the same spot. Some twenty or twenty-five thousand persons were on Kennington Common, of whom at least half were said to be mere lookers-on, come to see what was to happen, and caring nothing whatever about the people's charter. 
the procession was not formed, O'Connor himself strongly insisting on obedience to the orders of the authorities. There were speeches of the usual kind by O'Connor and others, and the opportunity was made available by some of the more extreme and consequently disappointed Chartists to express in very vehement language their not unreasonable conviction that the leaders of the convention were humbugs. The whole affair, in truth, was an absurd anachronism. The lovers of law and order could have desired nothing better than that it should thus come forth in the light of day and show itself. The clap of the hand was given, but the slaves with the jars of jewels did not appear. It is not that the demands of the Chartists were anachronisms or absurdities. We have already shown that many of them were just and reasonable, and that all came within the fair scope of political argument. The anachronism was in the idea that the display of physical force could any longer be needed or be allowed to settle a political controversy in England. The absurdity was in the notion that the wage-receiving classes, and they alone, are the people of England. The great Chartist petition itself, which was to have made so profound an impression on the House of Commons, proved as utter a failure as the demonstration on Kennington Common. Mr. O'Connor, in presenting this portentous document, boasted that it would be found to have 5,700,000 signatures in round numbers. The calculation was made in very round numbers indeed. The Committee on Public Petitions were requested to make a minute examination of the document and to report to the House of Commons. The Committee called in the service of a little army of law stationers' clerks and went to work to analyze the signatures. They found to begin with that the whole number of signatures, genuine or otherwise, fell short of two millions, but that was not all. The Committee found in many cases that whole sheets of the petition were signed by the one hand and that 8% of the signatures were those of women. It did not need much investigation to prove that a large proportion of the signatures were not genuine. The name of the Queen, of Prince Albert, of the Duke of Wellington, Sir Robert Peel, Lord John Russell, Colonel Sipthorpe, and various other public personages appeared again and again on the Chartist roll. Some of these eminent persons would appear to have carried their zeal for the People's Charter so far as to keep signing their names untiringly all over the petition. A large number of yet stranger allies would seem to have been drawn to the cause of the Charter. Cheeks the Marine was a personage very familiar at that time to the readers of Captain Marriott's Sea Stories, and the name of that mythical hero appeared with bewildering iteration in the petition. So did Davy Jones. So did various persons describing themselves as pug-nose, flat-nose, wooden legs, and by other such epithets acknowledging curious personal defects. We need not describe the laughter and scorn which these revelations produced. There really was not anything very marvelous in the discovery. The petition was got up in great haste and with almost utter carelessness. Its sheets used to be sent anywhere and left lying about anywhere on a chance of obtaining signatures. The temptation to schoolboys and practical jokers of all kinds was irresistible. Wherever there was a mischievous hand that could get hold of a pen, there was some name of a royal personage or some cheeks the marine at once added to the muster-roll of the Chartists. As a matter of fact, 
almost all large popular petitions are found to have some such buffooneries mixed up with their serious business the committee on petitions have on several occasions had reason to draw attention to the obviously fictitious nature of signatures appended to such documents the petitions in favour of o'connell's movement used to lie at the doors of chapels all sunday long in ireland with pen and ink ready for all who approved to sign and it was many a time the favourite amusement of schoolboys to scrawl down the most grotesque names and nonsensical imitations of names but the Chartist petition had been so loudly boasted of, and the whole Chartist movement had created such a scare, that the delight of the public generally at any discovery that threw both into ridicule was overwhelming. It was made certain that the number of genuine signatures was ridiculously below the estimate formed by the Chartist leaders, and the agitation after terrifying respectability for a long time suddenly showed itself as a thing only to be laughed at. The laughter was stentorian and overwhelming. The very fact that the petition contained so many absurdities was in itself an evidence of the sincerity of those who presented it. It was not likely that they would have furnished their enemies with so easy and tempting a way of turning them into ridicule if they had known or suspected that there was any lack of genuineness in the signatures were that they would have provided so ready a means of decrying their truthfulness as to claim five millions of names for a document which they knew to have less than two millions. The Chartist leaders in all their doings showed a want of accurate calculation and of the frame of mind which desires or appreciates such accuracy. The famous petition was only one other example of their habitual weakness, it did not bear testimony against their good faith. The effect, however, of this unlucky petition on the English public was decisive. From that day, Chartism never presented itself to the ordinary middle-class Englishman as anything but an object of ridicule. The terror of the agitation was gone. There were efforts made again and again during the year by some of the more earnest and extreme of the Chartist leaders to renew the strength of the agitation, the outbreak of the Young Ireland movement found many sympathizers among the English Chartists, more especially in its earlier stages, and some of the Chartists in London and other great cities endeavored to light up the fire of their agitation again by the help of some brands caught up from the pile of disaffection which Mitchell and Marr were setting ablaze in Dublin. The monster gathering of Chartists was announced for Whit Monday, June 12th, and again the metropolis was thrown into a momentary alarm. Very different in strength, however, from that of the famous 10th of April. Again precautions were taken by the military authorities against the possible rising of an insurrectionary mob. Nothing came of this last gasp of Chartism. The Times of the following day remarked that there was absolutely nothing to record, nothing except the blankest expectation the most miserable gaping, gossiping, and grumbling of disappointed listeners, the standing about, the roaming to and fro, the dispersing and the sneaking home of some poor simpletons who had wandered forth in the hope of some miraculous crisis in their affairs. It is impossible not to pity those who were thus deceived, not to feel some regret for the earnestness, the hope, and the ignorant, passionate energy which was thrown away nor can we feel only surprise and contempt for those who imagined that the charter and the rule of what was called in their jargon the people 
would do something to regenerate their miserable lot. They had at least seen that up to that time Parliament had done little for them. There had been a Parliament of aristocrats and landlords, and it had for generations troubled itself little about the class from whom Chartism was recruited. The scepter of legislative power had passed into the hands of a Parliament made up in great measure of the wealthy middle ranks, and it had thus far shown no inclination to distress itself overmuch about them. Almost every single measure Parliament has passed to do any good for the wage-receiving classes and the poor generally has been passed since the time when the Chartists began to be in power. Our corn laws repeal, our factory acts, our sanitary legislation, our measures referring to the homes of the poor, all these have been the work of later times than those which engendered the Chartist movement. It is easy to imagine a Chartist replying in the early days of the movement to some grave remonstrances from wise legislators. He might say, You tell me I am mad to think the Charter can do anything for me and my class. But can you tell me what else ever has done or tried to do any good for them? You think I am a crazy person because I believe that a popular parliament could make anything of the task of government. I ask you, what have you and your like made of it already? Things are well enough, no doubt, for you and your class, a pitiful minority, but they could not be any worse for us, and we might make them better so far as the great majority are concerned. We may fairly crave a trial for our experiment. No matter how wild and absurd it may seem, it could not turn out for the majority any worse than your scheme has done. It would not have been very easy then to answer a speaker who took this line of argument. In truth, there was, as we have already insisted, grievance enough to excuse the Chartist agitation and hope enough in the scheme the Chartists proposed to warrant its fair discussion. Such movements are never to be regarded by sensible persons as the work merely of knaves and dupes. Chartism bubbled and sputtered a little yet in some of the provincial towns and even in London. There were Chartist riots in Ashton, Lancashire, and an affray with the police, and the killing before the affray, it is painful to have to say, of one policeman. There were Chartists arrested in Manchester on the charge of preparing insurrectionary movements. In two or three public houses in London, some Chartist juntas were arrested, and the police believed they had got evidence of a projected rising to take in the whole of the metropolis. It is not impossible that some wild and frantic schemes of the kind were talked of and partly hatched by some of the disappointed fanatics of the movement. Some of them were fiery and ignorant enough for anything, and throughout this memorable year, thrones and systems kept toppling down all over Europe in a manner that might well have led feather-headed agitators to fancy that nothing was stable, and that in England, too, the whistle of a few conspirators might bring about a transformation scene. All this folly came to nothing but a few arrests and a few not heavy sentences. Among those tried in London on charges of sedition merely was Mr. Ernest Jones, who was sentenced to two years' imprisonment. Mr. Jones has been already spoken of as a man of position and high culture, a poet whose verses sometimes might almost claim for their author the possession of genius. He was an orator whose speeches then and after obtained the enthusiastic admiration of John Bright. He belonged rather to the school of revolutionist, 
which established itself as young Ireland, than to the class of poor fussels and cuffies and uneducated working men who made up the foremost ranks of the aggressive Chartist movement in its later period. He might have had a brilliant and a useful career. He outlived the Chartist era, lived to return to peaceful agitation, to hold public controversy with the eccentric and clever Professor Blackie of Edinburgh on the relative advantages of republicanism and monarchy, and to stand for a parliamentary borough at the general election of 1868, and then his career was closed by death. The close was sadly premature even then. He had plunged immaturely into politics, and although a whole generation had passed away since his debut, he was but a young man comparatively when the last scene came. Here comes not inappropriately to an end the history of English Chartism. It died of publicity, of exposure to the air, of the Anti-Corn Law League, of the evident tendency of the time to settle all questions by reason, argument, and majorities, of growing education, of a strengthening sense of duty among all the more influential classes. When Sir John Campbell spoke its obituary years before, as we have seen, he treated it as simply a monster killed by the just severity of the law. Ten years' experience taught the English public to be wiser than Sir John Campbell. Chartism did not die of its own excesses. It became an anachronism. No one wanted it any more. All that was sound in its claims asserted itself and was in time conceded. But its active or aggressive influence ceased with 1848. The history of the reign of Queen Victoria has not any further to concern itself about Chartism. Not since that year has there been serious talk or thought of any agitation asserting its claims by the use or even the display of armed force in England. The spirit of the time had meanwhile made itself felt in a different way in Ireland. For some months before the beginning of the year, the Young Ireland Party had been established as a rival association to the repealers who still believed in the policy of O'Connell. It was inevitable that O'Connell's agitation should beget some such movement. The great agitator had brought the temperament of the younger men of his party up to a fever heat, and it was out of the question that all that heat should subside in the veins of young collegians and schoolboys at the precise moment when the leader found that he had been going too far and gave the word for peace and retreat. The influence of O'Connell had been waning for a time before his death. It was a personal influence depending on his eloquence and his power, and these, of course, had gone down with his physical decay. The Nation newspaper, which was conducted and written for by some rising young men of high culture and remarkable talent, had long been writing in a style of romantic and sentimental nationalism which could hardly give much satisfaction to, or derive much satisfaction from, the somewhat cunning and trickish agitation which O'Connell had set going. The nation and the clever youths who wrote for it were all for nationalism of the Hellenic or French type, and were disposed to laugh at constitutional agitation and to chafe against the influence of the priests. The famine had created an immense amount of unreasonable but certainly not unnatural indignation against the government, who were accused of having paltered with the agony and danger of the time, and having clung to the letter of the doctrines of political economy when death was invading Ireland in full force. 
the Young Ireland Party had received a new support by the adhesion of Mr. William Smith O'Brien to their ranks. Mr. O'Brien was a man of considerable influence in Ireland. He had large property and high rank. He was connected with or related to many aristocratic families. His brother was Lord Inchiquin. The title of the Marquisate of Tolman was in the family. He was undoubtedly descended from the famous Irish hero and King Brian Boru, and was almost inordinately proud of his claims of long descent. He had the highest personal character and the finest sense of honor, but his capacity for leadership of any movement was very slender. A poor speaker with little more than an ordinary country gentleman's share of intellect, O'Brien was a well-meaning but weak and vain man, whose head at last became almost turned by the homage which his followers and the Irish people generally paid to him. He was, in short, a sort of Lafayette Monquet. Under the happiest auspices, he could never have been more than a successful Lafayette. But his adhesion to the cause of young Ireland gave the movement a decided impulse. His rank, his legendary descent, his undoubted chivalry of character and purity of purpose lent a romantic interest to his appearance as the recognized leader, or at least the figurehead, of the young Irelanders. Smith O'Brien was a man of more mature years than most of his companions in the movement. He was some forty-three or four years of age when he took the leadership of the movement. Thomas Francis Marr, the most brilliant orator of the party, a man who under other conditions might have risen to great distinction in public life, was then only about two or three and twenty. Mitchell and Duffy, who were regarded as elders among the young Irelanders, were perhaps each some thirty years of age. There were many men more or less prominent in the movement who were still younger than Marr. One of these, who afterwards rose to some distinction in America, and is long since dead, wrote a poem about the time when the Young Ireland movement was at its height, in which he commemorated sadly his attainment of his eighteenth year, and deplored that at an age when Chatterton was mighty and Keats had glimpses into spirit land, the age of eighteen to wit, he, this young Irish patriot, had yet accomplished nothing for his native country. Most of his companions sympathized fully with him and thought his impatience natural and reasonable. The Young Ireland agitation was at first a sort of college debating society movement, and it never became really national. It was composed for the most part of young journalists, young scholars, amateur literateurs, poets on herbe, orators molded on the finest patterns of Athens and the French Revolution, and aspiring youths of the Cherubino time of life, who were ambitious of distinction as heroes in the eyes of young ladies. Among the recognized leaders of the party there was hardly one in want of money. Some of them were young men of fortune, or at least the sons of wealthy parents. Not many of the dangerous revolutionary elements were to be found among these clever, respectable, and precocious youths. The Young Ireland movement was as absolutely unlike the Chartist movement in England as any political agitation could be unlike another. Unreal and unlucky, as the Chartist movement proved to be, its ranks were recruited by genuine passion and genuine misery. End of section 1